Welcome to the Digital Drummer. It's Jim Newsom. We're Urban Tech Talk on the radio, and we are waiting for Jim to call in. And we may just call Jim, and we are also today our special guest is Mike Green. And Mike is the co-founder of America 21, as well as um, Mike is co-founder of America 21, and he is a tech columnist for Huffington Post. Tech, um, America 21 is a great, great project, and we really need to hear from Mike to see how we can all gather around and support and he's also partnered with the Urban Tech Fair so we can help move both of our missions forward. And so we are waiting for our people to call in. And in the meantime, what we will do, we will go to a selection and play some good music for you for the moment. And I will pull up Mr. Newsom's phone number. We will get a hold of Jim, and then we will get a hold of Mike Alrighty, so we will do a little, um, alrighty, alrighty, we're going to (coughs) do, this is a new release, Gone, by Range the Messenger. And it's, it was released for free. It may still be available at 3crates.bandcamp.com. Check it and see if you can still download it for free. It's a new release. Working toward his new um, EP that will be released, I guess, in about another 30 days. And this is Gone by Range the Messenger.
told the leader, understand we're prisoners of our land. And won't be controlling to the doors in hand. Got to make like a camera, get focused, man. Rather the folks to know we won't give in. It's all about the money. And you just try to take it from me. To reach my door, you get a foot in your toe. Being hands on broke on a rope. And we want to let you know, Rucker, 
Kwame Anthony Apia, Marv Frazier, Mike Holman, Van Jones, Window Snyder, Angela Benton, Black um, E. David Ellington, Gina McCauley, and Omar Wassel. So those are 17 of our Black Internet pioneers. Now, make sure you can find that over. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Urban Tech Fair, and you will see the article posted. Like us, like the article, and catch up on your history. And all of these names are tagged, so you're able to click onto the names and learn more about each person and their contribution. And so, um, also in the news today, as far as tech is, how will the web monetize itself in 2020? That is a trending news topic um, on Twitter today. And um, basically what they're saying is, that um and we, what happens is the way we access the internet is growing and growing and growing the number of ways because of mobile devices the the internet tv and whatever new things will be developed between now and 2020 the number of devices that access the internet are growing tremendously as well as the um people the number of people. So, you know, in this, you know, with this new splintering of how people are accessing the Internet, how will the web monetize itself in 2020? So, and in that, um, you know, th- that's the question of the day. How will the web monetize itself in 2020? So we're going to um, just look that up. Um, news feed, blogs, and the wire shadow. Okay, we're just finding we're, we're actually looking for that. Um, everything changes so much. Okay. Well, okay, here's the original article. And you can find this at TechCrunch. And basically, what they're stating is. Right now, the web is on massive change. And by 2020, the number of global Internet users is expected to quadruple to 4 billion. And most of these users will come online using multiple devices. Additionally, existing usage will move significantly from the monolithic computer to mobile. As smartphone, tablets, smart TV, and who knows what other devices further permeate both work and home life. As online population and usage becomes more and more fragmented across multiple devices, the key question is, again, how will all this multi-device traffic be monetized? Chris Dixon recently blogged that most mobile apps currently fit into one of four categories, which are time wasters, um, core utilities, episodic utilities, such as OpenTable, Uber, Hitmonk, and notification-driven apps do just that, notify you. 
Broadly speaking, these four categories also happen to describe how the web will be used and monetized in 2020. Entertainment will either be monetized by the content itself, paying for a game or for subscription to watch a show, and or by advertising that will be broadcast that will be broadcast in nature. Social ads on Facebook may not drive response as much as other online channels, but Facebook's wide reach and high traffic will make it a natural venue for brand awareness campaigns. Core usage will be sold as standalone apps or subscription services. Your monthly cell phone plan, for example. Few people want to be advertised to while they are using a device for core usage. Episodic usage will mostly be monetized by advertising, which will be more targeted in nature as opposed to broadcast. I use the term advertising broadly. That is, restaurants that take reservation via open table app are essentially advertising on a per-reservation basis. Now, notifications will be monetized via a combination of advertising subscriptions and freemiums, all depending on the nature of the notification. Personal productivity notifications, like the app that reminds you to take a break every hour, will probably be free and most likely show ads with the option to upgrade to ad free. Notifications that are based on some sort of purchase intent, like sale alerts, will be monetized by advertising. Apps that provide an ongoing service, like the app that notifies you when your PS3 at home is turned on, will either be purchased outright or be subscribed to on a monthly basis. So outside of entertainment and core usage, the bulk of the web will still be monetized the way it is today, via advertising. So that's just an interesting. Now they go further on and talk about Device fragmentation, equal. does that equal market fragmentation? You know, like search queries, episodic usage is rich with content, and intents are the same on different channels, apps, and devices. So, you know, the article goes on, and we, it will be posted over at the Urban Tech Fair. We will, um, again, that's facebook.com forward slash urban tech fair. And um, you will see the article posted, but it's definitely interesting reading as well as for you to be able to gear your activity, you know, um, when you're looking for growth and futuristic, you know, where you're going to invest. And so, you know, the more devices you definitely, definitely want to get into. So right now, um, we're going to get ready to call Mike and... um, We're going to take a little break. We're going to play the intro, and we're going to come right back. This is Master Griot Radio, channel 13 on your NBBTA internet radio dial. I'm Jacqueline Taylor Adams, and I am your host for this moment in time. It's time for purpose-driven words, shaping thoughts, building minds, true wealth, communities, and legacies. If my words had wings... They'd fly to you each day. Okay, we are back. We are back. So Jim Newsom is about to call in, and the moment he calls in, we're going to together call Mike. Mike um, was out with his son. It's a wonderful day, I guess, out in L.A., because it's raining here in Philly. (laughs) 
which is cool for the moment. It's just the only thing that's going to happen after this wonderful rain. We're getting another heat wave. What's the weather like in your town? So we're excited. We're going to bring Mike on, and as Jim um, calls in, um, we're going to bring Jim on right now. So hello, Mr. Newsom. How are you? Uh, first, let me apologize to my brother Green and everybody. I'm here at a church musical, and the spirit just got us carried away. So I'm a little bit late. Forgive me, my brother. Okay, we're getting ready to call Mike. Um, but why don't you just tell a little pe- people a little bit about Mike? Okay, uh, Mike Green is a, a, a featured technologist. He's an advocate for. Uh, uh, African-American and minorities in technology across the country. He writes for the Huffington Post. Uh, He's also involved in uh, America 21 and a number of different, uh, uh, what he likes to call, hyper-entrepreneurship programs. Uh, He's currently working with a variety of different uh, community and grassroots groups to raise a venture capital angel fund to help uh, empower and lift up minorities in technology and actually be able to fund uh, black businesses in our community. Oh, okay, Jim. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to call Mike. And i got to figure out what I just did with Mike's phone number. Okay. Uh, I just had Mike's number here with me. Okay, Jim. Um, why don't you do me a favor? Give a little more background while I figure out what I just did with Mike's number because I just called him. He actually talked on the phone, and so so he could get back and get steady. And um, so I know I have the phone number because I just called him. But while I find that, Jim, why don't you just go ahead and? Um, Tell a little bit um, about, you know, the America 21 Project and um, his reporting and his starring just in the Oregon business um, news. Well, uh, Mike has been featured in uh, many uh, local publications. He's from Oregon as well as national publications. Uh, the brother has uh, just put together an event about six months ago in uh New York called the uh, Black Venture Capitalist. Uh, he's currently working with uh, groups like uh, Norm Bond and OIC, which has their uh, $100 million fund. He's uh, working with oh, a variety of people. I, he's just the who's who in black technology. If you're about business, then you need to know Mike Green. That's why we're so proud and happy to have him to be a part of the Urban Tech Fair and so honored that he's agreed to be a virtual uh, mentor to work with some of the uh, winners of the tech challenges and to advise some of the people in our community next year as we do the tech fairs across the country. Okay, okay, that's great. I'm still looking here. All righty. <laughs> Oh, while you're looking for that, I just want to remind everybody that the Urban Tech Fair 
is now on uh, Google Plus on the big way. So if you're on Google Plus, uh, circle us there. We're actively out uh, promoting and marketing our cause, which is access, education, and commerce. We're looking for all of the community, regardless of race, politics, or religion, to support this endeavor to lift up our own communities to discover Silicon Valley in our own backyards. Uh, and let me compliment Jackie as well on the new Urban Tech Tech Fair uh, store with the uh, T-shirts and apparel. Uh, she's picked out some beautiful things and some great prices. Make sure you stop by and visit the store. Get yourself a T-shirt or get yourself a polo shirt. Uh, the Urban Tech Fair is coming out big time, and we're doing great things, so keep your ears open and tell your friends about us. Okay, all right. I did post a, um if you could, I posted in the chat room, everyone, to sign. Um, if everyone could sign our um, email list, it's posted there in the chat room. And, um, Okay. Let me see. Um, I called you after I called Mike. Uh, oh, wow. I don't believe I just called Mike. I had I had his phone number. Um, you know, what, what I can do... What kind of happened? This is live radio. <laughs> yes, and... yes. It's just, and I just had everybody's phone number. I found your phone number. I, I mean, I talked to everyone. And I know 514, and I have it written, and I'm trying to figure out what different space do I have it written in that I don't see it directly right here in front of me since I just called him. <laughs> uh, it's, like, really weird. Then, uh, I'm trying to see if I'm just overlooking it. And that's only because I take so many notes, people. I take so many notes, and I write so much. <laughs> You're such a hard worker, Jack. <laughs> While you're looking for that, let me just praise you for a minute for all the work that you've been doing in the community and uh, the different shows and multimedia projects that you have going on. We're just so honored and thankful to have someone like uh, Jackie Taylor Adams on our team helping keeping us organized, focused, and in a positive direction because, as you guys can tell, sometimes I get lost in the moment. <laughs> um, can you do me a favor, Jim? Um, can you report, you know, give us an update as far as the Urban Tech Fair, what's, you know, went on for the week and all, you know, how we do normally at our meetings. It would be good to let our audience know what good things. Bonnie just stated over in the Facebook group that the Urban Tech Fair was just mentioned at a conference. Uh, okay, I'm not sure which that. She said the C the C S T A conference in Irvine. Um okay. the Urban Tech Fair was mentioned and some of the projects that were a part of the discussion. Well, there's a lot of people talking about us. We're getting a lot of press, we're getting a, a a lot of interest from people like Mike Green and uh uh Quasi and great leaders in our community. You know, everybody's kind of working in their own barrel, focused in on their own mission, but we're all headed down the same path. We all want the same thing, and it's time for us to come together as a nation 
and organize and showcase and demonstrate what's possible, not what is, but what we can do for ourselves when we come together because we have the power and the ability as a community and as a people. We spend over a trillion dollars uh, as a consumer market. We need to begin to focus that money, the power of the black dollar, the community dollar, on developing new businesses, new sources of revenues, and new ways to distribute our goods. Uh, relative to the, for those that don't know, we have a bi-monthly uh, leadership call. If you're interested in getting involved in an urban tech fair in your city, you know, we've got over 17 different cities interested right now. And uh, that call is open to the public where our city leaders get together and talk about where we are and, and what's moving forward, best practices, and how we can support and help each other. Currently, we're in the organizational and the structure phase. We're just trying to get all the paperwork together, get our marketing plans, get our PowerPoint, get our brochures, uh, get everybody on the same page speaking the same language so we can move this idea, this concept of community empowerment forward. As uh, some of you are aware, President Obama has put together a national initiative uh, to get 90% of this company country online by next year. We're involved with that through the BBOC, Broadband Opportunity Coalition, which is a group of all your major legacy organizations from the Urban League to the NAACP to La Raza. It's a multicultural, multilateral effort to improve our community, and this is what we're trying to do. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Hi, uh, Randy. Sorry for taking a little extra long like to call in, but we call you. I, I misplaced your phone number from when I called you about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> no, that's all right. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I blew it the first time, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been telling We're so the glad audience. Glad to have you on board, uh, uh, Mike. I've been kind of uh, going over your bio, bio uh, uh, off the top of my head. This is live radio, as you can tell, and uh, I'm currently uh, away from my computer desk right now. So if you can kind of introduce your, uh, yourself to our community, to those that uh, listen, to those that don't know of you, and uh, your accomplishments and your mission and your goal with the America 21 Project. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, my background is in media. I'm a 16-year uh, veteran journalist, uh, award-winning New York Times Leadership Academy fellow, CNN.com training. Um, I was a uh, digital content editor at uh, Dow Jones. In fact, I inaugurated the position of content editor way back when no one knew what a content or a web editor was. And I was given the fortunate opportunity to uh, conceive and implement new digital and print processes uh, dovetailing the both and streamlining newsroom uh, processes and, and creating new digital innovations that won a number of awards uh, here in Southern Oregon. And um, got a chance to uh, do, a, uh, do a lot of research and understand the landscape of digital media innovations uh, as, it, as it was actually unfolding 
And uh, so I was one of those leaders that was um, talking about entrepreneurial journalism uh, way back before anybody knew what that was and the coming disruptions that would uh, um, that we all know now social media has brought to bear. So uh, part of that led me to leave media because uh, a lot of folks up at the top just weren't getting it, and I became a tech entrepreneur. And as a tech entrepreneur in southern Oregon and dealing with uh, angels and VCs down in Silicon Valley and up in Silicon Forest up north in the Pacific Northwest, I uh, looked around and saw that I was the only person in the room that looked like me. Uh, as, as a tech entrepreneur, there were very few looked like me, and as uh, the angel investors and, and uh, other risk capital uh, investors, they didn't look like me. And so I started writing about this at the Huffington Post. I'm also a Huffington Post blogger. I also blog for Yahoo and blog critics. And as I started writing about this, I wrote this four-part series called The Innovation Crisis in Black America. And when I wrote that series, a lot of folks came out of the woodwork. All of a sudden, these disconnected, fragmented folks from all over the country were calling me. And they were saying, thank God, hallelujah, you're the only person we know that's at your, at your uh, perch that's writing about this stuff, that's paying any attention to it. And sure enough, as a member of uh, a number of different uh, journalist organizations, I was the only voice that was talking about it, even within my, uh, among my peers. And I thought, man, this is really strange. But anyway, we formed, uh, I, I met this brilliant uh, attorney out of um, Cleveland, Ohio, Jonathan Hollyfield, and, uh, and a biotech scientist out of Philadelphia, Chad Womack. And between Jonathan and Chad, we formed the America 21 Project because we felt like if, it, if, no, one was, if, if no one had done anything about this before, this innovation crisis, and we were the only ones actually talking about it, and we batted this around for six months, then if we didn't do anything, who did we expect to, uh, to do what we weren't prepared to do? So we, we went all in and decided we were going to do this. We created the, uh, the framework, and the framework is this. We have three main goals at the America 21 Project, which, by the way, you can uh, see at blackinnovation.org, blackinnovation.org. So the America 21 Project has three main focuses. The first one is to change the economic narrative across black and urban America, change the economic narrative. Why? Because we don't even talk about this stuff. If you don't talk about it, you don't know anything. Uh, so that's a problem. We need to understand what the innovation economy is, the 21st century innovation economy. We have a 20th century mindset. And we approach economics with a 20th century mindset, and we're constantly disappointed, and we wonder why. As Dr. King said back in the 60s, we live on islands of poverty surrounded by oceans of wealth, of prosperity. And that is true today, but we don't understand why that is, and that's because the game has changed. Well, changing the economic narrative is our first priority. The second thing is that we promote inclusive competitiveness strategies, inclusive competitiveness strategies among the established ecosystem. And that's because folks get together all the time and strategize, what are we going to do for this region for the next 10 to 20 years? Well, when those folks get together and decide what they're going to do to form regional innovation clusters, we're not in the room. Mm -hmm. Inclusive competitiveness strategies we promote to the established ecosystem to let them know you can't get there from here without us. And that's a problem, but they're waking up and they're recognizing that too. So that's, that's something that's moving forward. The third thing that we do is we connect economically disconnected communities to regional innovation clusters. It does, mean, it does not do you a whole lot of good if I'm trying to connect you to opportunity that's 3,000 miles away. No, we are connecting disconnected communities 
to their local and regional innovation clusters. And keep in mind, Dr. King says we're islands of poverty surrounded by oceans of prosperity. It's right around us, but we don't know that it exists. And until we know it exists, we can't connect to it. So we do that. We let you know it exists. We let them know you need to be in the room, and then we connect the two. So those are our three things. And here's our framework, how we uh, promote all of these, how we reach these goals. We have a framework that people understand, that we promote uh, so that people understand what the innovation economy is, and it's simple. The first thing is STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. I don't care what kind of um, passion you have. I don't care what your interests are. If you're not proficient in science, technology, engineering, and math, if you don't have that as a background, that's the on-ramp to high-wage jobs. It is also the on-ramp to high-growth entrepreneurship. So if you don't have that as a background, if your children don't have that as a background, you're going to have an uphill battle. I'm not saying you can't make it. I'm saying you're going to have an uphill battle. And guess what? We already have a, a very steep hill anyway. So science, technology, engineering, math is the on-ramp. That's the first thing. That's what we call the pipeline. Then you get to the productivity part, pipeline to productivity. The second thing is the three things. The first is STEM education. The second is high-growth entrepreneurship. What's the difference between high-growth entrepreneurship and just plain old entrepreneurship? Well, we are no strangers to entrepreneurship. We are innovators. We're creators. We have to be. We, you know, we, we grew up poor. Most of us did. Uh, our ancestors were poor. Uh, we had to find a way to survive, to thrive, and we did that. So we're innovators. We're creators. But the problem is we got a lot of barbershops. We got a lot of uh, restaurants. We got a lot of, a lot of stuff. And that's fine, and we need that stuff. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not poo-pooing that. That is absolutely essential to our economy. But guess what? We have 1.9 million businesses, black-owned businesses, in the country, and we produce less than 1% GDP and no job growth. 1.8 million of those 1.9 million are sole proprietors with zero employees. We have no job growth. High-growth entrepreneurship is the key that we need to plug in because high-growth entrepreneurship plugs in jobs. And, and I'll talk about a little bit about what high-growth entrepreneurship is and how to get there. But the third thing is high-growth entrepreneurs need access to capital. And not just debt capital. They like to send us to the SBA and to the banks and the financial institutions so we can mortgage our homes and whatever else we have left. Uh, and, you know, after the friends, families, and the proverbial fool, we're left stuck with no money. You can't grow mm -hmm. a business without risk capital. Risk capital has to be at the table. They recognized that back when Dr. King was alive, and that's when they started the venture capital industry. The venture capital industry is the risk capital industry. It's uh, comprised of venture capitalists who actually invest public and private dollars, and that includes your pensions, into companies that they direct and they control. Now, angel investors are investing their own money, and there are angel, hundreds of angel groups across the country. There's only one black angel group. In, in that whole ecosystem. That's a problem because we don't have risk capital to invest in growing our own innovation ecosystem and our high-growth entrepreneurs and creating jobs among ourselves. So STEM education, high-growth entrepreneurship, and access to capital are our three pillars of the 21st century innovation, global innovation economy, and we're focused on that in order to accomplish our three goals. There you go. All right. You know so on point, um, we've talked so many times about you can't win a race that you don't know exists. And I had spoken earlier while we were waiting uh, to get you on about a conference that you put on, I believe, about six months ago, a black uh, angel conference where you're actually trying to draw and educate uh, 
uh, black businessmen about the potentials and the returns and how to invest in high tech? Well, yes, the Gathering of Angels. It was the nation's first minority gathering of angels that we did in partnership with the um, Urban Economic uh, Urban Entrepreneurship, uh, I'm sorry, Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development over at Rutgers Business School. And what we did is we had two days. The first day was dedicated to entrepreneurs. We brought out CNN's Black in America, uh, Silicon Valley documentary folks, the ones that were featured in that, uh, in that, in that uh, documentary. And we talked to them. We had them on stage, and we had a, had a big conference with them. And we also vetted and brought out 13 minority uh, tech entrepreneurs. And we had a pitch session to investors, ranging from Goldman Sachs to a legendary Silicon Valley investor and everybody in between in that audience. We had more than 120 people that were in attendance. Out of those 13 tech entrepreneurs, eight of them were immediately approached by investors. The next day, it was totally devoted to angel and risk capital investing. What is it? Why is it? Why do we need to be involved? We had high net worth individuals, minority individuals in the audience talking about this. We had everybody from George Frazier and Shahara Llewellyn and Dr. Randall Pinkett and, and Tim Reese, who was the uh, uh, Tim Reese and Terry Hicks, who were the founders of the Minority Angel Investment Network, and they just spawned off a new uh, national minority angel network that Tim Reese is, is developing right now. All of them were there. And so when we talk about the ecosystem of um, risk capital and folks who are engaged in that, the, we had the folks who were engaged in that at the table. And we also brought in people who were not engaged in it, but we believe uh, wanted to, needed to be exposed, and they wanted to be exposed. And we're trying to educate high net worth individuals in our community that if they're not involved in this, if, they're not in, if they don't get in this game and invest in high-growth entrepreneurs and, and job growth in this country, then we're, they, they relegate our entrepreneurs to going to networks that they're not familiar with, and those networks aren't familiar with them. And we've got this uphill battle. We have got to change this game. That means we've all got to get into it, and we've all got to work together. So, yes, the Gathering of Angels was the first in the nation. And guess what? It worked so well that Silicon Valley now has made way. We're actually preparing to do it again in Silicon Valley. This time it's going to be bigger and better, and it's going to be right there in the heart of the hub of innovation. Now, I know one of the things that, that you talk about often is not so much about getting in the game but being prepared understanding the different stages and the different levels that uh, uh, VC and investors are looking for. Now, as we both know, our community has a lot of people, especially baby boomers, with money that are investing in, in traditional uh, uh, real estate, uh, stocks and bonds, and other type of uh, uh, financial uh, instruments. Maybe you can take a second and kind of explain the uh, ecosystem that you're talking about and some of the benefits of, of why uh, people should invest in a, a startup or in new ventures versus buying an apartment building or opening up another barbershop. Okay. It's <laughs> a, a very good segue. I appreciate it. Uh, here, here's the problem. Last year, $52 billion, that's with a B, was invested in roughly 70,000 companies. We were neither the investors nor the recipients. So that's folks who understand that every year, and this happens every year, there must be investment 
in a portfolio of potential high-growth companies. And why? Because high-growth companies in a span of three to five years will return 10 times to 20 times that return on that investment. And so you have, last, just last year, you had, venture, or you had angel investors who invest their own money invest $22 billion in 66,000 companies. $22 billion in 66,000 companies. And uh, the range of those type of investors were somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 320,000 people that were investors who were writing those checks of $22 billion in the 66,000 companies. Now, that's the folks who are getting funded, those 66,000. That doesn't necessarily mean how many folks are out there looking for money. So you can imagine how big that, that landscape is. And then on the, on the higher end, because angels start – with investing from as low as ten or fifteen thousand dollars to as high as one point five million, so that's the that's the space that they play in, and they play in what we call the valley of death, and that is when you're when you're an entrepreneur and you've got a great idea, you've got to get yourself a team, and you've got to put together a your plan and your approach, and you've got to answer all the various different questions and, and put together your pitch and go out and, and raise some money. Now, typically you raise money by putting in your own money. That's the first thing. You've got to have skin in the game. Then you ask your family, your friends, and so on and so forth. You're raising enough capital to get to a first milestone, to get somewhere where now you can go out and convince somebody else to give you money. Typically we go to banks and other places, and they, they want to loan us money and that kind of stuff. Angel investors want a share of your company. So if you convince an angel investor to invest in your company, they want to know how much equity will I get into that company and for X amount, so on and so forth. So that's the, that's the game being played on that level. And so they are really buying a piece of these companies that they're putting that $22 billion in. And in, when these companies blow up 10 times to 20, 22 times or 20 times ROI in three to five years, you can see that they're beating the stock market all the hell and back. Now, this, this other part of that is the venture capital folks. Now, these folks are not just investing their own money. They're investing pro, uh, public money as well, pension funds. And when you talk about pension funds, you're talking more than a trillion dollars worth of pensions. And so a lot of that money is being put into New, uh, uh, what they call early stage growth companies. Now, these are companies that are not at the seed stage where the angels play in the valley of death, where you're race, out racing time before your cash flow runs out. That's why they call it the valley of death, because once your cash flow runs out, you're done. Well, uh, that's, angel, that's why angels get their name, because they come in right at the right time when you really desperately need money in order to reach that next milestone and start to become cash flow positive and become a profitable company. They help you do that. But once you become that, once you get that business model down, how you, how you bring in money, once you get it down and you're executing it, that's when the VCs come in. And they say, wow, this company is growing at an early stage. Let's fill it with about five, $10, 20000000 million. And when you do that, now you're scaling that company. And when you scale that company, you could take a $5 million company, you could put, or you take $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, whatever it may be, and put it in a company, and inside of three to five years, that company's worth $100 million, $150 million. That's how uh, uh, VCs make their money. And so now everybody's playing that game in the majority culture, but we're not playing that game. And so because we're not playing that game, our companies do not scale that fast. And when you scale that fast, what do you need? You need employees. You need, you're creating jobs. And so when, when you scale that fast and you need jobs, 
and typically this is a uh, tech-based, knowledge-based, tech-driven industry. You need qualified folks. You, you don't have time to train. You need people that are coming in that can actually get with the program right away. These are typically um, uh, people who already have that type of education and the type of background that you need. And so you really need qualified folks. We're not filling those gaps. And so, in fact, we're not the only ones. I'm not just saying black folks. I'm saying everybody's not filling those gaps. Uh, that, that industry, the, the, the innovation economy is growing so fast that the folks who are successful in it have to go overseas to find folks. And the reason they're going overseas to China and India is because China and India started preparing for this a generation ago. And they started preparing their children with core academics in science, technology, engineering, and math, not elected. It's like this is what everybody will learn. So they have an abundance of qualified folks to fill jobs, and that's why you have uh, quite a bit of diversity starting to happen in the, um, uh, the, the regional innovation clusters around the country, but that diversity are typically uh, Asians and East Indians and immigrants. So um, it, it's not us. It's not blacks. It's not Hispanics. And so we've been left behind. And so the, the importance of us doing for us is that that industry is growing so fast that folks don't have time to look around the table and say, who's not here? They just don't have time. However, they do realize that if they don't invest in this, these large swaths of people, blacks and Hispanics, who are outgrowing and outpacing everybody else in the country just in population growth alone, if you don't do that, pretty soon your economic competitiveness will be affected. And guess what? That's already happened. So they recognize that there's a need to include us in that equation. The problem is they don't know how. Why? Because we don't even speak that language. And our schools are broken. And our families are broken. And our communities are broken. I mean, it's a huge problem. They're wondering how to fix it, too. Now, you know, Mike, we've been over this before. I believe in our communities, and I believe in our people, and I believe in what you're saying in terms of the root cause of our dysfunction going down to the family and to the educational system. A kid coming out of high school should at least be able to read a spreadsheet to understand the difference between a, a, a profit and loss and a performance. These should be basic courses that are taught in our schools, and if our schools are not willing to educate our students in terms of entrepreneurship and the basics of business, then we as a community have got to step up to the place. But I want to uh, touch on one point that you kind of overlooked, which I think really goes to the heart of our community, which is the bootstrap process of the entrepreneurship uh, uh, ecosystem. Uh, normally, We've heard the expression about deals being made on the golf course, uh, being able to reach out to families and friends to spread the word about what your idea is and what you want to do to get that initial seed capital to begin to develop a prototype or begin to develop an idea. Now, in our community, they have no problem investing in a rap record. They have no problem investing in a nightclub. As I said, they have no problem investing and traditional brick-and-mortar businesses. They're opening up and they're closing every day. In fact, we were known as one of the prime motivators behind the pager systems. When they first came out, you had a pager store on every other corner in our community. 
then when the computers came out, you had a computer store on every every other corner. Now the big box uh, uh, companies have kind of closed out that market. But relative to new opportunities, when you start talking about innovation, apps, video games, uh, those type are, are, are low cost seed investment of let's say fifty to a hundred grand. If people would get out and begin to spread the word of what their idea is and begin to develop their idea, that's what we're trying to do with the Urban Tech Fair. So relative to bootstrap or seed funding, what advice do you have for our listeners? Well, it's an interesting point that you bring up. It's very, uh, um, it's a very apropos um, point. And here's the here's the here's the here's the situation. You're ahead of the game. That's that's the problem. Think about this now. Um, when we were a targeted people, that's not too long ago. You know, uh, uh, four or five decades. We we're targeted people. How did we how did we overcome that? How did we actually start to begin to get into the middle class and begin to generate wealth? We relied on a couple of things. One, we had to petition the government to help us. So now you got a whole bunch of folks working for the government. And uh, but on the other side, we relied on our talent, our artistic ability, our uh, our, our physical capabilities. So we we infiltrated and began to take over many of the sports landscape, much of the sports landscape. We also infiltrated and began to demonstrate our capability, our, uh, um, uh, our, the quality of our entertainment. And so entertainment became a landscape that was receptive to, to us because we could produce. We could actually, they could make money off of us. So as they began to make money off of us, we, you know, slowly but surely began to learn that landscape, too, and began to start to understand how the business side of it worked, and began, we started to see very slowly but surely folks starting to, um, uh, to become media moguls in those, types of, uh, in those types of arenas. The same thing happened with sports. We started to see now they're owners, we're, we're owners, and, and so on and so forth. So we moved the path that we had available to us. The problem is, is that at the same time that our, uh, uh, we were moving in that direction, there was a technology revolution that was occurring in this country. And our, we, our schools were not prepared for it. They still aren't. That's the problem. They were not prepared for it. They didn't prepare my generation. They didn't prepare the generation. And I'm 50 years old. They didn't prepare my generation for this. They didn't prepare my, uh, my father's generation for this. So uh, here we are in a technology-based, uh, uh, a tech-driven innovation, global innovation economy. And full, I mean, in full-blown. It, we're, we're moving into the second decade, and it's moving at light speed. And you guys are absolutely correct that we could, we, we could be participating and competing in this if our young people who are innovators, who are creators, were able to access seed funding in order to be able to generate prototypes and be able to move their ideas ahead. The problem is that nobody's going to give a kid $50,000 or $150,000. You know, and when you're talking about getting into some social media platforms, you're definitely in the six figures when you talk about building audience and communities online. No one's going to do that if you aren't able to build, recruit and build a team of qualified folks 
if you aren't able to reach certain milestones and understand business models and the whole uh, the, the the pitch that you need to make and the competitive uh, advantages and the, and protecting your intellectual property and all the various different things that go along with your idea, if you don't have that capacity, who's going to write a check and entrust that check into your hands just because you have a good idea? The notion that good ideas are worth something. Is a, is a misnomer. It isn't. People yeah. do not invest in ideas. They invest in people. And that's a problem. We don't have, our, our people are not effectively and efficiently uh, uh, prepared and equipped so that when we go to, when we go anywhere with a good idea, that's all it is. It's a good idea, but the ability to execute that idea, know, knowing the various landscapes and the pitfalls and the pivoting that needs to happen, that must happen in entrepreneurship, we're, we're, we're naive to that. And so there needs to be a lot of education around that, which is one of the things that America 21 Project is doing. We're actually um, partnering with um, uh, NAFIA, the uh, advocacy arm of the 105 HBCUs, because we want to start teaching entrepreneurship at that level and at the high school level as well. We, if we could get down to middle school and even uh, elementary school, we would. I mean, my daughter's 12 years old, and she's already uh, making money selling her jewelry, and, and she's a little fashion designer. You know, we, we talk about how to create your business and all this, and she's, she's, been, she's doing it. She's 12 years old. So, it, it, it's, you know, we're capable of doing these things. But no one's out there teaching it to us, and it certainly isn't uh, information that's readily available through the public schools. And, and so what you're doing is absolutely, with Urban Tech Fair, is absolutely critical. But, again, I, I, I reiterate, you're ahead of the game. Well, well you know, um, I just wanted to chime in here, gentlemen, real quick. Um, you know, Mike, you're just a breath of fresh air. <laughs> and it's, I mean, you know, you do. I, I, I'm, I don't know if Jim feels it, but, like, I a lot of times feel like a lone wolf. <laughs> and I, um, I've actually, you know, my goal is in five years to have my idea venture. I have an idea venture capital firm that I'm actually forming because I've seen this problem so much. Um, I've been an entrepreneur for a while, and I've even, like, vended on the street. And, and this habit happens in our community so much that even as a vendor, um, we actually got in it by way of my stepson. He would go to New York, find this new stuff, bring it to Philly, and he was selling this back in the ninety he was selling simple t shirts for like fifteen dollars. They started putting rap sayings on t shirts and they would sell. And you know, so about a month and a half we just sold out because nobody knew where it was and all. Then they started figuring out, you know, where we got it and what happened, they would come back and undercut. Then the next person would figure out where to get them from. They would come back and undercut. Then the next person, to they undercut it so much, it was no need. And we stopped, would stop selling it because there was no profit margin. And what happened, it went from just us selling it to everybody would sell the same thing. And so went the pattern. You, you know, you would stay ahead of the curve. But I could not understand why no one would just try to come up with their own idea instead of everyone doing everything horizontal. And they sell it out to the point that they, you know, undercut everybody so much no more profit margin, and then it's on to the next thing. So oh, that's the nature know. of the business. Welcome to the welcome to the world of business. You were Steve Jobs. You came out with the iPad, and guess what? A split second later, you've got everybody else with a tablet. 
Hey, I understand that. I'm always, you know, the moment the idea hit the public, I'm on to the next idea. You know, that's my yep. thinking. But unfortunately, you know, like our community, we move hard too many of we move horizontal too much. We have to create at sometimes some per- vertical paradigms. Because, you know, no we didn't think, okay, we're vendors out here on the street competing against these you know, Asian stores that have come into our community and, and they have all the stores. Now we had the opportunity, if we were smart enough, enough of us to sell a little bit everybody sells something or everything that we know know our community want. And, you know, and we had opportunity all to just sell that and um capitalize from that because unfortunately Asian stores they do. They all sell basically all the exact same thing, just different versions of it. We had the, actually the opportunity to do a little differently. But that's not the you know, the general mindset. But like, you know, um as I was stating with the venture capital firm, that whole idea is to get you know, to take an idea and to do a feasibility study, to come up with the business plan to to, to identify the person who has the passion for it and ability and creditworthiness and all to carry the idea forward, and then you know for that person to have that backing who may not know how to do it themselves because you know you know back you know this was a back in the nineties, but I always you know realized this is where a lot of people lacked, and including the same thing with our artists. But I did just want to share with you. Just, you know, by sharing information, a lot of times we don't realize, and probably my biggest blessing has been in the past, this past year on the Internet, is young people. I just happened to felt bad for some young people when we were on, you know, Help Youth. I work with a lot of youth on this youth platform with all these adults. Actual young people came on the platform and said, oh, I have a book. You know, support me. I, You know, they were authors. They kept coming on. They had these different books. And this was a huge group, and none of the adults were supporting the youth. And I noticed that, so I went back, found them all, said, look, I'm going to put them on the radio and really push what they're doing. And these youth had a following of young people. And they started, like, at age 13. Um, I think they're between 13 and 16. They are authors. Uh, One is a national activist. Um, She, uh, Al Sharpton is her direct mentor. Another young woman found, she actually lives here in Philadelphia, and they actually honor me with awards. She's an entrepreneur. She has one of the biggest uh, fashion blogs, and she calls herself one of the youngest fashionistas in the industry, and she's really well-known. And it's her parents and all, they're into entrepreneurship. I actually did career days at school where I did with nine-year-old fourth graders, and and this is I realized it was a mixed you know school, but a couple of the you know young guy whose dad was actually a, a plumber, whatever they had their own plumbing business. I asked him about the rule of seventy. No, I asked him what will money do for you. I said money's going to do one or two things. What's that? His nine year old whose dad was a plumber says he's going to work for you or somebody else. Um, so sometimes it's just actually being exposed. And I think we have more going on than we may actually realize, but everything is so disconnected. And I just wanted to share that with like what you said with your, your daughter at 12, um, that I've been blessed to be in the company of young people like her. And if we could maybe just share some of our stories. 
Well, you know, what's interesting is that when you say we're disconnected, I'll tell you, you're in Philadelphia? Yes. Okay. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, what, what, what's, what's tomorrow, uh, the 17th? 16th. 16th. 16th, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Ju- July 16th, the, at the Philadelphia School District, there's going to be a STEM summit of leaders coming together, science, technology, engineering, and math. These are educators community leaders, media, so if you want to be there, it's open. It's a public mm-hmm. meeting for anyone who is interested in moving the needle ahead, in supporting uh, our children, and in inculcating STEM education as a core uh, discipline within the Philadelphia School District and to build a STEM center that aligns education with uh, industry and, um, and and just builds a channel through which our young people are going to be better equipped and prepared to enter into the uh, the workforce and as, as entrepreneurs in the innovation economy. That's happening tomorrow, and I don't okay. know if a whole lot of people know about it. I will check this one listing. Um, I mean, there's a certain, like, pipeline that we have that, that really should have came through, but it's in Philadelphia, the school system, to be honest, is, is is just a hot mess. We, we actually had a really good leader, and they, they got her out because everybody, you know, Philadelphia's school system has been plagued so many years with um, self-interest that um, she, she was actually turning around scores, you know, just totally changing, and they got her out. Now, since then, you know, they want to bring in um, – um, they want to bring in these schools with these contracts, which I'm pretty sure most of them are friends of. That's, that's generally the standard way when the, these contracts charter come schools. down. Uh, no, not the charter schools. These aren't charter schools. They're because um, the charter schools are already existing and supported. Um, I forget. I, I I don't have the exact name what it's called, but they're uh, managing like we have mastery. Um, they're different companies that come in. And they they become in charge of basically they're outsourcing the school system instead of it being run from the school board, they're outsourcing it to these different companies that come in and run the school. So they. I, I, I would urge you. I would mm-hmm. urge you to uh, get in touch with Dr. Chad Womack. He's a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. biotech scientist and entrepreneur who lives in your backyard there in Philadelphia. He is mm-hmm. very well connected with the Philadelphia School District. He agrees with a lot of your uh, lamenting over the problems that exist within the school district. He's actually actively doing something about it by bringing folks together and getting them on the same page. And, in fact, he's the one that's coordinating this STEM summit tomorrow at okay. the Philadelphia School District. So, um when folks get together to strategize, we're not at the table. That's the problem. Yes, well, yes. You know, my, and, and, and that's the truth, that's the truth is, of the matter. Is, is what excites me about people like yourself, Mike, and, and, and James Hines and, and uh, uh, other uh, uh, black innovators around the country is that we're about creating a, a new table. I've often said that if uh, they won't allow you to sell your goods in the city square and you have quality goods, then you can sell them outside the gate and the crowd will come to you, kind of what uh, Jackie was referring to as to us being the innovators 
and the originators of American pop culture. There is so much money available in our community. It's just a matter of getting the right mindset, as you were speaking of earlier, to begin to focus our community on the fundamentals. And as you spoke of, you know, team building is so important. We have this attitude of, as a community, if I can generalize, about not wanting to tell anybody our idea because we're afraid that somebody's going to steal it. Well, if they don't have the right team and the right parts in place, they can't do nothing with your idea. It's about execution. And you've got to be able to talk. You've got to be able to speak the language of business. You've got to be able to understand math, the numbers. You've got to be able to to structure a business, know different types of business models. And, you know, on the underground street level, we're doing business every day, all day long. It's just a matter of taking it to the next level and, and going from an underground economy to an above-ground economy. We also need to learn how to pull pool pool our money and, and and pool our support. You know, another thing, um and these are like some of the problems I'm hoping that we will solve with our tech challenges as we do the urban tech fair. And as a marketing person I realize um one of the biggest problems I think we have in our community, and it may exist in other communities, but I definitely know it exists in the African American community. When you talk about recycling money within your community most people get lost, and it's not that they don't agree with the concept. They cannot visualize how to recycle dollars in the community. Therefore, they don't understand what you're saying, how it's not making sense. To me, if I have a good job and I spend money um, and, you know, you know, that's enough. They don't understand how when you don't support those who live in your community, um you know, one one way, shape, or form is, is like these people aren't supported and they don't keep their jobs, they can't keep up their homes, which then affect your property values, you know, you know, that's the value of going, you know, to um supporting a black you know, black owned business. Um and, you know, because these people have a lot of the same interests that you have and they support you know, some of the same things you do as far as schooling or it could be, you know, uh, spirituality or, you know, um, you know, social network or, co- you know, a lot of concerns are the same. And um, But I think people's inability to visualize and the same thing that comes with health, like our next show on the 29th, Katrina Starks will be here to talk about health. But I think um, our, our inability to visualize what people are saying and then, again, well, that goes you're, back to what, what you spoke about language. To. Yeah, what, what you're alluding to is we have a broken narrative. Uh, we're, we're very fragmented uh, peoples. And, you know, that's not our fault. Uh, you know, we didn't have any control over that, but that's where we are. We are fragmented. We have a broken narrative. So what resonates with you doesn't resonate with somebody, uh, you know, else and so on and so forth. And so uh, this whole distrust and mistrust of one another that was cultivated uh, along the way. So we have some serious 
difficulties, uh, challenges, not to mention the fact that we, our families are in, you know, we have broken families and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of things that go along with being poor for a long time, so you've got all that stuff and the crime and things of that nature to overcome. And so there's a lot of stuff. Now, that being said, you're absolutely right. The ability to circulate dollars, you you take other other. Uh, Folks, and I don't want to name anybody, but I can name several. You, you take other folks and you look at the way that they circulate dollars through their community, and how they build businesses, how they support those businesses. Then they build hospitals, then they build universities, then they build this, and they build that, and they support those things. And they support the you know across the ecosystem, whether it be entertainment, whether it be sports, whether it be health, whether it be education, whether you know whether it be fashion. It doesn't matter. They're supporting all of those various different. Uh, things within their community, and it continues to circulate over and over and over before it ever, the, the dollars before they ever leave. With us, we you know we get the we get the money comes in from elsewhere because typically most of us are workers. We're not entrepreneurs. So most of us are workers, so we're not actually creating jobs and creating wealth and creating money. We're just basically trading our time and energy in order to get enough money to survive. And then as soon as we get that money, we spend it. Elsewhere, on things or, or places that where that money immediately leaves our community, and you know it is that's that that's the paradigm. You you described it well. The problem is how do we fix that? And I don't know if you can fix that overnight. So you've got to start somewhere. And you guys, like I said, you guys are ahead of the game. So you're you're starting by. Uh, uh, the way you know your approach that that you're taking it, and America 21 is um, we're we're at a place where we're trying to change the economic narrative across Black and urban America, and so we've got to get the message out. We've got to talk about these issues, and you guys said it right. We don't even talk about this. We have to talk about it, and mm-hmm. when we talk about it, we'll start to begin to understand where we are, and that movement, that economic movement will occur, but it, it, we've got to at least start talking about it. Well, Mike, I don't want to let you off the line without um, you being able to expound on your, your your favorite issue in our community, which is having a 20th century mentality in a 21st century world. So, you know, that's a grandiose term, but if you can just take a minute and explain, in your opinion, what a 20th century mentality is, Relative to the 21st century that we live in. Oh man, you hit you hit the nail on the head. Uh, okay, <laughs> let, 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 let's go back up to the 19th century really quick because this is easy. You go back to the 19th century, and basically the, the American economy was agriculture. We had what we what is known as an agrarian economy. You could actually see crops growing. You knew somebody was actually making some money. It wasn't us because we were the ones helping to grow those crops on plantations and so on and so forth. Well, anyway. That evolved into the industrial manufacturing economy in, through the 20th century. And what happened? We had that great migration from the south up to the north to look for work factories and so on and so forth. We were constantly in a search for jobs, constantly in a search for jobs. Now, that's notwithstanding the few outliers. We had some, we had some uh, uh, thriving business sectors like Tulsa and, and, and New York and some others. And, you know, and you know, everybody knows the history of that. They all got torn down or whatever. But... The, the, the vast majority of us were just looking for jobs, and we were we had this job mentality, okay? So let's go find a job, and mostly, primarily, 
in these high-wage factory type of jobs, manufacturing, that type of uh, thing, because they were, they were abundant at the time. In fact, here's the data. In the 1960s, when Dr. King was lamenting the joblessness uh, in black, across black America, manufacturing was 30% of all jobs, of the entire job market. It was 30% of the job market. Our unemployment was still double that of white unemployment, but manufacturing was viewed as the place to go. Well, guess what? That 30% of the job market is today less than 9%. Yet we still are out there talking about let's go find these jobs. Now, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you take uh, the, the Jobs Act um, that uh, President Obama just signed on April 5th, which is a historic economic opportunity that just came about that we don't even talk about in black media for whatever reason. But that Jobs Act started around the same time that the Congressional Black Caucus was doing these um, uh, job fairs late last, last fall in five different cities. They did job fairs. They had thousands of people showing up at these places that didn't, they didn't have any jobs for these folks. And these folks were just showing up, and it was basically uh, uh, a, a, a stunt, a media a publicity stunt, in order to show that there's a lot of a lot of hurt and a lot of hopelessness out there. And everybody knows that. But I mean, to uh, to, to have these folks come out thinking that there's some jobs available for them at these jobs jobs fairs, I thought was. Well, okay, I, I, I'll just say it. I thought it was pretty short-sighted, and I, I, I didn't like the tactic at all. Because at the same time, you had, on the flip side, other folks pushing for this Jobs Act, which opened up the element of crowdfunding, which heretofore was only relegated or alloc uh, uh, allocated to accredited investors through this uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, SEC, and accredited uh, uh, investors had to have a million dollars net worth or more, and that's not counting your, your real estate property, and you had to uh, um, bring in $200,000 or more, and that qualified you to be that type of investor to invest in companies and so on and so forth. Crowdfunding said, no, no, no. Everybody can jump into this game. That was a that was a watershed moment in economic history that Obama actually signed into law a black president to open up the doorways for us to help us, and we missed it, completely missed it. We're out there at the job fair talking about the where's these jobs, you know, with this 20th century mindset, industrial manufacturing. Let's go find a job. Meanwhile, we're in an innovation economy, which is knowledge-based, tech-driven fast-paced global. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you, you know, it's now about how do we create jobs? How do we, how do we develop an entrepreneurial and an innovative culture? And as, as Steve Blank, who is the professor of entrepreneurship at Stanford University, and they're no slouch when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship, Steve Blank says this. He says, Silicon Valley would be nothing but a bunch of smart engineers tinkering in their garages without a culture of risk capital. So even if you have as many entrepreneurs smart as they may be, if you don't have a culture, not a few smattering folks who are willing to put some money out there, if you don't have a culture of risk capital in your community that is driving innovation and in, 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 uh, uh, growing, uh, growing um, companies, if you don't have that, then you don't have job growth. And guess what? Black America doesn't have job growth, and it's still stuck. 
in this, let's mm-hmm. train our children to go out there and find a job. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, who's creating that job? It's, it's, I'm not saying know, it's a bad thing to go out there and find a job. Respect. They, our community does not respect entrepreneurs, and I hate to say it, I'm in a family of one of them. My grandson, who grew up under entrepreneurship, wouldn't be able to eat if it wasn't for it because, you know, unfortunately my husband passed when he was young, and he was a handful. It didn't allow me to go back to the nine-to-five. So I had to rely on entrepreneurial endeavors, and entrepreneurs in my community honestly really helped me through a hard time. Uh, art galleries owned by you know friends uh, who you know who was it was okay to have. If I sometimes had to bring my grandson there, um, a couple art galleries. You know, I know you know a few art owners that got into art and they own galleries, and. Um, you know, believed in a family structure, so you had just more flexibility and all. But it was those entrepreneurs at my hardest time, you know, that helped me go, you know, to help me make it through. Well, I, you know, I did some entrepreneur work on the side, but at the same time, you know, when I worked with them, it was a little more flexible, and because it was surrounded by family, and they believed in the growth of the family. Now, that child, he's 23. And don't respect anything if you don't, like, a job is it. That's it. Just go get a job. You know, I just well, let me, let me, let me offer you this, because it's a <laughs> philosophy. It's a philosophy that we have to inculcate into our community. First of all, if you have a job, it's because of an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. If you have a job, you're working for an entrepreneur. So the, the idea that all I want to ever do is work for this one person, that's that's one idea. Now, here's the here's the, here's the other philosophy that we need to understand. First, If you have a job, you're working for an entrepreneur. Second, all, and I do mean all, businesses have life cycles. So if you Mm -hmm. are dependent upon that one job from that one entrepreneur, his life cycle comes to an end, so does your job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of course. And you know who's figuring that out? Media, journalists, because journalists in the last, uh, since uh, I think it's 2007, we've had 41,000 layoffs. 41,000 mm-hmm. journalists get laid off, okay? So all of a sudden, and we're contracting, so there are fewer jobs anyway in the media industry. So journalists are suddenly figuring out, oh, wait a minute, I should have had something going on the side. I got all mm-hmm. these networks. I'm college educated. I'm this, that, and the other. You know what? Half of black folks in New York are college. Uh, half of black folks in New York are unemployed, and many of them are college educated. Yeah. And I see, and it's very, speak of Philadelphia and our journalists, I think about one or two of them I have seen in these past 10 years that have come out. I have to give kudos to Bobby Booker because I'm also, you know, I'm always with the arts. So, I, you know, I seek reviews. And Bobby used to review books, and I sold books, and, and so I started working, doing PR work for authors. And Bobby Booker was the Philadelphia Tribune book reviewer. Well, you know, in these past year, Bobby is the only journalist that I've worked with, you know, doing PR all of these years, who's kept, matter of fact, she's more popular than ever. Probably if you didn't and weren't into books, you wouldn't have known Bobby Booker. She's more popular than ever because she went out and started blogging and creating her own following, and, and, and she's developed all of these other things since. But she has come out as a pillar well, while the other journalists and all, they just they stopped. One guy was supposed to write a book. I don't know what happened to the book. Um, you know, people they got laid off. They, you know, I guess they went on to just 
other jobs or different things, but she took the entrepreneurial role with her her journalism and has actually, you know, created a total space for herself. But that's one, yeah. and I don't know how many people I've dealt with over the past 15, 20 years. The opportunity to establish your brand when you're in a place where you have a steady paycheck is something people should not overlook because if you have that opportunity and technology allows you to do things today that we never could before. So the opportunity to be innovative, to be creative, and to do things while we still have a steady income is something that is essential. It's a necessity in our community. And and those who are in a position, high net worth individuals that are in a position to invest. When we talk about giving back to the community, I don't want anybody mm-hmm. to give back to the community. I want you to invest in the community. Yes. Well, you know, okay. we're coming up on, on, a, on an hour here, and you really brought up some great points. You really give, went over Business 101 here in the last hour. And, you know, I'm so honored and, again, thankful to have you uh, being a part, Mike, being a part of the uh, Urban Tech Fair, because, as you were saying, we've, we've got to begin to develop awareness and an ecosystem within our community to show the resources and people and talent that exist currently today. I know as as a journalist, you went to different uh, tech challenges, different conventions, and uh, uh, different workshops and seminars, and we are welcome there as a people. Nobody's closing the door saying no black, but we've got to get an awareness where we begin as a people to go outside of our small circle and to begin to learn new things. You don't know what you don't know. Like you say about the 20th century technology, we begin to see what's available and how we can mobilize our friends, our family, our relatives to begin to develop teamwork, to begin to self-educate ourselves on on certain structures, to begin to get the skill set necessary for the 21st century uh, economy. And uh, it's people like you that are going to make it happen. The Urban Tech Fair is simply a showcase highlighting people like yourselves, organizations like America 21, like uh, uh, National Entrepreneur Training Association, like all the good work that's going on by grassroots and nonprofit groups in our community right now. Jim, Jim, I have to do my regular correction. I have to do my correction. The Urban Tech Fair does more than showcase. So that's the one, I mean, you know, because showcase, okay, we're showing you, okay, this group exists, but we we have to go beyond that, you know, and, and we are going. That's what excites me so much about Jim's concept of the Urban Tech Fair. You're literally going in the community and you're showing them how to collaborate and how to leverage and maximize the use of what they already have existing. We show them how to showcase, and we showcase them, and then show them how to collaborate and leverage and to use their, their own resources to create to create solutions and show them how to support one another. You know, I tell that's you, that, what we that, do. That's an honorable thing. That, you guys are leaders, and, and I applaud you. I mean, uh, that is... You're you're helping to develop uh, the, the ecosystem. You're cultivating the ground. You, uh, I I think that what you're doing is ahead of the game. I think that you're doing exactly the right thing, and and I I, I applaud you. 
And would you two gentlemen, Mike and Jim, can you just for the audience, just to again to show in a, to, to to show our demonstration of collaboration? You hear America Twenty One, awesome. You know, Mike is just you know totally up there, and then we have the Urban Tech Fair. Even though the you know these are two tech things, two great ideas, and some places you know the, you know they they cross lines. How have you decided to work together as opposed to feeling that we're competing against one another? Well, I'll tell you that um, uh, at, at the America 21 Project, we look around the ecosystem and we look for ways to collaborate. We look for where we overlap with others, and, and virtually because we are talking about everything from the narratives to actually connecting communities uh, with uh, regional innovation clusters and opportunity. From everything from the narrative to actually doing something, uh, we, we cross somebody's uh, um, uh, path throughout that ecosystem. And what Urban Tech Fair is doing is across the ecosystem is absolutely essential because, like I said, you're tilling the ground. So uh, the America 21 Project certainly sees this as a collaborative opportunity for us because we can't be we can't do everything in the ecosystem uh, from our from from our uh, vantage point and from the um, from the partnerships we have with the White House to the Silicon Valley investors to Hollywood to across the landscape as we're trying to get this known throughout the universities throughout the K-12 industries uh, uh, ecosystem, we need folks on the ground who are actively engaged with communities and, as you said, teaching them um, uh, uh, all, all the various different uh, uh, all the various different things that you guys are doing and bringing them together and, and uh, collaborating with, uh, with those communities and teaching them how to collaborate with one another. We see that as an essential part of the ecosystem. So our partnership is, is, is you know, we're, we're ready to do whatever it, we need to do in order to support and enhance what you're doing on the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, if, I, if I can approach that from a, a different direction, uh, as, as Mike can attest, as he said in the opening statement when he came on the show, is that it's a small world when it comes to blacks and technology. And we basically know each other. We're basically like-minded. And there is no problem with collaboration. The issue is being able to put together a functional business model or nonprofit community project that will uh, uh, move our skills and our, our networking and our contacts forward. And uh, whether you're talking about Bay Anderson and the um, uh, Right to Vote project or whether you're, you're, you're talking about uh, the BDPA or, or whether you're talking about uh, uh, James Hines and Digital Hollywood, we come across each other all the time. We know each other. We talk with each other. And it's just about uh, a seriousness, a realization that what's going on right now with the innovation economy at this time in this government's history that we need to step up to the plate and it's people like Mike that have decided, and, and his partners that have decided to volunteer and to bring their skills, knowledge, and abilities to all of us. So collaboration is only one step. We've got to be able to, as they say, prayer without uh, works is nothing. 
we've got to go beyond talk and be doers. We got to be about it, and that's why I'm so honored to have Mike because he's doing great things not only in his community of Oregon but across the country. We've got to lift each other up and promote each other. That's what social networking is is about: is supporting and networking with each other. All right. But Jim, I, I thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. I, I got to tell you, this was one one last thing. That uh, one of our co-founders, he is the uh, Jonathan Hollyfield. He is the chief strategist and evangelist for the America 21 Project. Uh, one of the things that uh, when we talk about collaboration, uh, we're we're in um, <clears throat> we're headquartered in Cleveland, uh, in Northeast Ohio. And uh, Jonathan Hollyfield was just appointed the vice president of inclusive competitiveness. Uh, for Nortec. Nortec is the tech-based economic development engine that covers 21 counties in uh, northeast o- Ohio. It gave birth to Jumpstart America. It uh, has helped um, uh, um, hundreds of businesses and uh, raised billions of dollars and, uh, and, and produced jobs and, and so on and so forth. Well, as the vice president of inclusive competitiveness at Nortec, Jonathan Hollyfield was very instrumental in influencing Policy Bridge in their latest report on Northeast Ohio with regard to um, uh, what what the economic landscape looks like. And that influence has helped open the eyes of a lot of folks that are uh, uh, in charge of the economic uh, future of Northeast Ohio. So he's making headway there. And I do believe that at some point in the very near future, we're going to have um, vice presidents of inclusive competitiveness positions across the country. He is the first he, in in the history of this country. He's the first vice president of inclusive competitiveness anywhere, and so he is at a very high perch. And uh, and and from there, I, I think that where we're moving in collaboration with other organizations, urban tech fair included, we're ready to create an economic, 21st century economic movement across black and urban America. Amen. Okay. All right. Um, well, yeah, we're, we, we've been stopped streaming, and our chat room, which was <laughs> filled, is empty because once we stop streaming live, they can no longer hear unless they called in. But, um, you know, the show is, def- is definitely being recorded, and, um, we been we really get great hits on archives where people download and listen. So um, I really put it out there. So I'm hoping we really have a, a great number of people who come back and listen. And um, I just you know want to thank you, gentlemen. And if um, you know, I, I think you basically even had your closeout statements. But if you want to say anything extra, we can just like close this out. I think Mike said it all in terms of trying to create uh, a movement across the country. Uh, This country needs it. This country is in real trouble, and we've got to lift our own selves up. The time has passed for us to be looking to government and looking to corporate America. We have all the tools, resources, and abilities within our own neighborhoods. As we often say with the urban tech field, we can discover Silicon Valley, the spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship in our own backyard. True. Right. And, um, yeah, we, we actually have it, and there are a lot of people thirsty for it. So it's like once you say it, they are looking, and they're looking for an answer. So I think of some exciting things ahead, and it's been great 
you know, speaking with you, Mike and Jim. So glad you guys came on. I'm so glad to do this all by myself. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And anybody that needs any more information from us can go to blackinnovation.org. That's blackinnovation.org. Yes, and that is in the um, chat room. Um, I copy the notes. I do try to take notes. That was getting a little fast, but I do. Um, um, blackinnovation.org is in the chat room. The framework is all listed. We have information about the Urban Tech Fair. So we do copy and paste this, Mike. It gets copy and pasted over to a document in the Urban Tech Fair group. So all of our chat um, histories go there so people can come back and look through. Fantastic. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being on the show. All right. Take care of that newborn, Mike. You know, you're a blessed man. You have a wonderful family, and God is doing marvelous things in your life. Amen. Thank you so much. All righty, gentlemen. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful week. Talk to you later, Jack. Peace.